Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, as we read the promise to Mary of the coming birth of her son, Jesus. Verse 28, God's word, uh, verse 26, I'm sorry, God's word says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that it shapes us and forms us. We thank you for the real, living, and present Word of God in your Son, Jesus Christ, who was born as the perfect gift this Christmas season, the perfect gift for those who have believed that we might have eternal life, and for those who are yet to believe that they might receive uh, the, the life that He gives and receive forgiveness through Him. Father, I pray that you would bless me, give me the words to say that I might encourage and build up, Take away those words that would distract or lead astray, and may all be done for your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So this morning I want, to, I want you to see two things from our text uh, that we've just read. One is, I want you to see the reversal of the curse. And second, I want you to see the new creation. So first, let's consider the reversal of the curse in verses 26 through 33. Now, we're told in the first few verses of this passage that an angel Gabriel appears to a young virgin named Mary in the city of Nazareth. And like we've looked at with each of the women we've looked at over the last few weeks, I want to look at a few facts about this woman named Mary that we have here. First of all, it tells us that she is of the city of Nazareth. Now, calling Nazareth a city is a bit of an overstatement. In fact, a good comparison would be the little community we have here of Sandcut. Nazareth would have been very comparable to the Sandcut community. We wouldn't call it a city. We, I don't know what we really call it other than home. But it is, uh, Nazareth would, ha, is just a, a side stop, a pit stop on a major trading route. It was just a hamlet with a few family homes and family dwellings. And you, you might remember that Nathaniel, one of the disciples of Jesus, when he first meets Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 
46, or when he's told about Jesus, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, Nathaniel says that for two reasons. One is that Nazareth is just insignificant, that it, it would be like, and no offense, but it would be like someone from Montgomery saying, can anything good come out of Georgiana or anything good come out of McKenzie? Well, a lot of y'all are saying, yeah, I came out of McKenzie or I came out of Georgiana. But, you know, there's that, that, there's that sense of pretension and all that from the big city to the little city and so, or little town. And that could be, it is part of what's going on with what Nathaniel said about Nazareth. But Nazareth is also despised or looked down upon because of its location. Like I said, Nazareth was on a major trading route, and it was common for Roman soldiers to stop over in Nazareth as they were traveling to to quell some rebellion in another location or to supply an army or an effort that they were making in war. And so Nazareth became associated with the Roman Empire. And as a result, uh, they were viewed as less than Israelite citizens. They were viewed as not true Israelites because of their uh, assumed sympathy for the Roman Empire. The second fact that I want you to see about Mary is we're told that Mary is a virgin. Now, the word virgin means both a woman who has not known a man, and a young woman. I say it means both because it's popular in our day, and if you ever watch a a History Channel documentary, they'll try to argue over the meaning of this word virgin. And they'll try to say that it doesn't, they'll call into question Mary's virtue and, and call into question the miraculous conception of Jesus. But it's not as though the word means either one thing or another. But it can mean both. Uh, For one, Mary was young. She was likely probably between the ages of 13 and 15. And Mary had not known a man. She says that very thing in verse 34. She says, how can these things be? For I am still a virgin. The third fact that I want you to notice is that we're told that Mary is betrothed to Joseph, who is of the house of the lineage of of David, the great King David, who is the ideal king for the nation of Israel. Now, this is additional evidence of her virtue and her age because only young, virtuous women would have been betrothed in this way. So, with these three facts, I want you to recognize something very important about Mary that fits with all the other women that we've looked at so far. And remember the theme that we've been looking at is God's special favor on the outcasts and the forgotten of this world. Because of her location, Mary would have been despised by her fellow Israelites. Uh, She would have, uh, her reputation would have been automatically soiled regardless of who she was personally, anywhere else she might have gone in the region of Judea. People would have looked down on her. They would have assumed that she was a sympathizer with the Roman Empire. In fact, uh, there's a common myth or, or uh, uh, skepticism about Mary that she was not a virgin, but rather that she had, been, uh, had relations with a Roman soldier, and that's how she conceived Jesus. So 
Uh, you could see, get in that, even, even that little fact, the assumption that Mary is less than a good person just because of where she lives. Second, uh, because of her age and her status as a virgin, she has zero rights. Her father or her husband or her betrothed would have made every decision for her. She would not have been able to decide what she bought on any given day, where she went on any given day, in order to protect her virtue and the appearance of righteousness and, and, and virtuousness in her life. She would have been expected to be cleared by either her betrothed or her father for anything and everything that she did. Yet, in verse 28, notice how the angel Gabriel greets her. He calls her favored one. Now, the word favored one, the Greek word for that is cheruto, or cherito, which means highly favored or endued with special honor. It's the idea of a king coming to you uh, and bestowing some great honor on you, or like we do in America, going to the president and re- receiving the president's Medal of Freedom or something like that. It's the idea of having a special favor or a special honor giving, given to someone by another person of authority. So the angel announces exactly what this high honor will be in verse 30 by telling Mary that she will have a miraculous conception. And there are three things about this that are important that we can't miss and uh, that, that highlight the favor of God on Mary. For one, her son Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High. Now this phrase isn't just an indication of who Jesus' true father would be, but also it is an indication that points to Jesus as the Messiah. Now all kings, and, and we tend to miss this in, in, uh, in our modern times because people don't do this anymore, but all kings in ancient times professed to be the son of a god. So even, for example, the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus, who is the emperor at the time that Jesus was born, he claimed to be the son of God. It, it, on the coins that were printed that had Caesar Augustus's image on them, on one side it had a star, hint, hint, and on the other side, it had his face, and it said over the top, Caesar Augustus, son of God. And so every king claimed to be the son of a God, but Jesus is and was the one and only true son of God. Second, Jesus would receive the throne of David. So because of his adoption by Joseph, Jesus was in the lineage of King David. And God had promised that David would have an everlasting throne. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, he tells David that there will always be someone on the throne of David and that there will come a descendant of David who will reign forever. So Jesus would fulfill that promise. Third, the the angel Gabriel foretells that Jesus will have an everlasting kingdom. And this was the great hope of the promise of David, but it was also the great hope of Israel. 
The hope you hear repeated throughout the Old Testament is that one day God will come and he will reign over all the nations. That's what we read in the prophecy from Micah chapter 4 is that one day God will restore his nation. He will restore Israel. He will bring back a remnant. And that remnant will not just rule or live in a land that God will give them, but God will reign through them over all the world. And Jesus has done that very thing in his life, his death, and his resurrection, and most importantly in the gospel that it goes out into all the world. If you think about it, that's what people hate when they hear that Christianity is growing in a, a country that has an authoritarian ruler. Think about it when, when Christianity flourishes in nations like China or Nepal or India. The, the government responds by sending armies to to round up Christians and to kill them or to imprison them. Why is that? It's because Christians, when we profess faith in Jesus Christ, we are saying that Jesus is the king. That the president in the White House is a steward. He is not a king. The king in England is uh, is a steward. He is not a king. The ruler of Nepal or of China or of India or of whatever country, he is a steward. He is not a king. There is only one king of kings, and it is Jesus Christ. And so the world hates that claim because they want total authority. The nations of this world, they want to have complete and absolute authority. And a Christian who claims that they are first and foremost allied and under the authority of Jesus Christ is saying that they are first a citizen of heaven and second a citizen of their home country. And so it roils the, the anger of the nations that we would claim that Jesus reigns over all. But he does. And one day, he will return to complete that reign. So in all of this, God is reversing the curse that affects all of humanity by bringing about a new life through Mary. God's favor on Mary means that grace will extend to all of humanity through her. Through her favor, God will save all who trust in His Son. Through her favor, God will give new life where once there was only death. The second point I want you to see from this text is the new creation from verses 34 through 38. After receiving the announcement from Gabriel, Mary reasonably asked, Well, how can these things be since I'm a virgin? As with Sarah and with Rachel and Elizabeth, Mary recognizes the physical impossibility of what God is promising that he will do through her. The explanation from Gabriel highlights the grace of God for all of humanity by hearkening back to the creation and then pointing forward to the new creation in Jesus Christ. Notice two ways that this is true. First of all, I want you to recognize that Mary is the new Eve. Eve, the first woman created uh, created from Adam, was said to be the mother of all flesh. Now Mary will be the mother of the Son of God who will bring about a new humanity. 
In Jesus, he will give new life. In fact, Jesus would call this new life in John chapter 3, he would call it being what? Born again, right? He would give that new birth to all who believe in him. Also, Mary, uh, in Mary, God is reversing the curse that Eve has brought on the whole world. So Eve doubted God. And in her doubt, she took the forbidden fruit and she plunged the whole world into sin. But now Mary, on the other hand, says in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Mary does not reject the word of God like her ancestor Eve. Instead, she believes and she obeys the word of God. And through that obedience, she brings life where once there was only death. Second, Mary is the home for the new creation. With the first creation, all of the Trinity is at work. And with the new creation, all of the Trinity is at work. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we're told that the Holy Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. And in verse 35 of our text today, we're told that the Holy Spirit would work in Mary to cause her to conceive Jesus. In Genesis, we read that the power of the Most High created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And in verse 35, we read that the power of the Most High will create the Son of God out of Mary's virgin womb. In Genesis, God speaks and His Word brings forth a good creation. And in verse 35, we read that the eternal Word of God will be conceived as a son in Mary's womb. This miracle is necessary for our salvation. In this miracle, in this miraculous conception, God begins his work of making all things new. So Jesus lives as the perfect new Adam who would do what Adam could not do by perfectly obeying the law of God. Jesus gave life wherever he went. He took what was part of the curse, blindness, and lameness, and deafness, and disease, and even death, and he reversed that, and in that he gave life. And the ultimate gift of life that he gave was his own life, that he gave as a sacrifice for our sins. And in his resurrection, he brought forth a new life, so that those who believe in him will have everlasting life. So friend, hear the words of the angel from verse 37, where he says, nothing will be impossible with God. God has done all that is required for your salvation. He has brought new life in Jesus. But if you continue in the way that you're going, there is only death. But the hope of Christmas is that there is new life in Jesus Christ. Won't you receive the new life of Jesus this morning? This morning we're going to have an invitation and uh, Bill's going to come up and lead us a cappello because I've got to uh, be down front. Uh, and we're going to sing a hymn together. But if the Lord is calling you to respond today to this gospel message, won't you do that as we sing? Or if you want to be a part of our church and maybe you want to join us in membership here, 
at Antioch West. I invite you to come and talk with me about how you can be a member here and participate with us in fellowship here. But if the Lord is leading you, won't you respond as we sing? But before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus and the new life that we have in him. We thank you for the obedience of Mary, who responded as the new Eve to be completely obedient to the prophecy and the word of God, and that through her, we receive the life of Christ. Father, I pray that you would bless us as we respond. In Christ's name I pray.